When I first heard Casey Anderson, I was living in a small apartment in downtown Charleston with a buddy of mine. We'd both just picked up everything we owned, bid our respective ice-covered northeastern cities adieu, and set out to plant some roots somewhere a little more hospitable, or at the very least, spend some time in the southern sun until the money dried up. I heard Don't Look Back during one of these first few months in Charleston. Living in a strange new place on the heels of adventure, I connected on some deep spiritual level with the song's themes of self-deception, movement through time and space, and the hidden and sometimes bitter truths that emerge from deep reflection on why and how we end up the way we do. Most importantly, I heard this raspy-voiced guy singing over an acoustic guitar and thought, how can something so familiar sound so fresh and new? Casey Anderson's formula is simple at its core. A peppering of power chords, a hammer-on here and there, some pull-offs, G's, D's, C's, a plenty, hard-driving 4-4 arrangements, pentatonic solos, 3-minute, 30-second playtimes. But there's also something foreign, dangerous, cryptic, brave, exposed and vulnerable about his work. His songs marry the growl of Steve Earle with the bravado of a Springsteen shuffle, and there are always hints of starry-eyed folk singer desperation, commonly found in the likes of artists old and new, from Dylan to Duritz. But Anderson's very best songs, tunes like Last Thin Line and All Lit Up, emerge from the sonic horizon like strange new landforms, made up of all the expected material, sand, rock, and limestone, but somehow fused and sculpted into something unworldly. His are the types of stories that, despite, or perhaps because of, treacherous antagonists, oft unrealized shots at redemption, and quote, being a little bit sore but feeling alright, make the listener feel young, energized, and full of potential. Years ago, listening to Don't Look Back on the doorstep to what felt like the rest of my life, I remembered how deeply the track cut for me. Step right, boy, the city's just a game was a lesson in levity for an aspiring singer-songwriter like me just trying to make it. Then there's the last verse, which became something of a clarion call for me, not just during those first few months in Charleston, but also for years to come, as I navigated the uncharted terrain of growing up. The older I get, the more I discover. You stare into the dark long enough, something's bound to shine. I recorded an interview with Casey Anderson about four months ago now on October 28th. I'm really excited to share that interview with you now. I'm going to split it up into two parts. This week I'll share the first part of the interview. We talk about a range of things. Uh, one in particular is about Casey Anderson's songwriting style, where he follows a song and a story from its first track to its final track. To honor that, I thought I'd play an early version of the very first track off the upcoming record to the places we lived. The song's called Believers, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. Casey, wanted to thank you again for being able to play this song for all my listeners. Take a listen to a piece of Believers, and then stick around for the interview. Sun come up this morning, sky was speckled blue and gold. Look like something I took from a dream A 500-year-old painting Some old master never sold 
Like a picture up there waiting for a frame And I wondered for a moment About the colors that we see How they'll disappear and everything will end And then I settled down and listened to you Let my mind go drifting back again To when you and me We were believers Looking for the diamonds in the dust And I made a promise I'd never leave you I'll be with nothing left but us There was Santa and a weather out where seasons never change My first question is in a couple sentences who is Casey Anderson? Man, uh, well my Twitter bio used to say that I was a gradually retiring songwriter um, The most recent introduction I gave myself in a in a video a fundraising video was a formerly incarcerated person in recovery so i'll say i'm a formerly incarcerated grad gradually retiring songwriter in recovery love that excellent yeah. maybe i might i might have seen a new twitter uh a new twitter bio emerge there um so your music's been called country rock americana acoustic roots rock alt country the list goes on what would you call it uh, I would, I, I, I usually just call it rock and roll. Um, okay. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that there is those, the, the genre label thing, um, can be pretty restrictive, I think for people. And, and, um, I also think that it's a way of gatekeeping and keeping, keeping people, um, out of, certain genres and out of certain opportunities um you know and those the people that are kept out of those genres and opportunities are are primarily you know black artists queer artists um and so it, to me it's always just been rock and roll which is based in folk and blues you know which is based in in um music that goes back centuries and would you say you've been an independent artist through the years I mean, yeah, I've never, I've, I've never had like a, I've never had a major label deal. I've been on some labels, but I've never, I'd, you know, I never signed to a major label. And <clears throat> at this point in my career, because I'm kind of slowly stepping away from things, um, you know, I don't have like a, a publicist on hand unless there's going to be a record that comes out. Um, my manager and I are in contact mostly as friends at this point. Like I don't, you know, I, I, the, the, the ship kind of runs itself. I know that there are a certain amount of people who care about my records. And of course I'm interested in, in reaching as many people as I can, but um, most, you know, most of everything is done in house at this point. Cool. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask the reason I bring up indie and independent is because I think indie has taken on in, in, in recent years, or maybe not so recent years, perhaps it's been an increase, a trend, but indie in my eyes has, has been kind of bifurcated in that you've got 
uh, indie used as a designation of genre or style, and then you also have indie used as an indication as to how a record or a song was composed or conceived of. Um, and so it sounds like you are you are independent in the sense you've never been signed to a major label, but also in the sense that it's very DIY to a degree right now. Um, but also, I mean, you've got into you've got you've got bands like, I mean, you've got bands like the Killers who at different periods of time have uh, kind of aligned themselves with with indie rock and roll. So that's why I wanted to kind of see your take on indie and independent and, and what it means and whether it matters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there was a point at which Pearl Jam was releasing their own records and was technically an independent right. artist, right? right? And Pearl Jam at this point is, and I, I love Pearl Jam, but Pearl Jam is, is a is a corporation. You know what I mean? Like the Pearl Jam is a big machine. Sure. Um, there's a, they're a small family, but that's a, that's a big band. And so I think, you know, I, growing up in the, in the Pacific Northwest in the nineties, um, I think there's a certain connotation to indie that implies, you know, a band that's doing it without a lot of, of financial support from a label without a huge publicity machine behind them and just kind of working mostly on word of mouth. Um, and so in that, in that regard, my career is very indie at this point. Um, and then also, you know, the way that I make records is independent in the sense that um, I don't have to answer to a label. I don't have to share, you know, I don't share royalties with a label. Um, the, most of the creative decisions are mine and whoever's producing the record or whoever's playing on the record. So there's, there's really, there aren't a lot of influences in the way that my career is run at this point beyond what feels right for me, which cool. is a good way to do it. And there sure. were, there were times in my career where even though I wasn't on a major label, there were other influences or, you know, there were smaller labels who had say, or I had a manager who was, who was maybe more hands-on sure. than they are now. <clears throat> um, and it, it just didn't, I mean, for some people that's the way to go for me, it turned out to be not really an effective way to have a career in this industry. Sure. Cool. Um, all right, so let's let's head back to, to the beginning a little bit, uh, Casey. You released your first album in 2004. That was two years before Spotify, which has become one of the foremost music streaming services, was founded. How has the music industry changed since then, particularly for independent artists? Uh, well, the, um, the cynical answer is that a lot of people have made the decision to kind of tell us through the way that they make purchases that, or don't make purchases that, well, the work we do is very meaningful to them. It's worth nothing to them financially, right? Like, I mean, that's the message, whether you want to or not, when you subscribe to streaming services rather than buying records or buying downloads from the artists, you're saying like, I would rather give my money to this company and have access to your catalog for free than give money directly to the artist. And I think that that's, that's something that a lot of fans don't take into consideration because I mean the delivery to have an entire world of music at your fingertips for $9.99 a month is more convenient more cost effective than paying $10 for every record you want to hear and sure. I you know I subscribe to streaming services too I'm not I'm not innocent of that um so I think that that is a message that has kind of been clearly sent whether purposefully or not um, and it's a message that's been really strongly sent by Spotify and Amazon and the streaming services that, you know, the, the, the makers of the product are worth nothing. Um, <clears throat> however, in terms of how people interact with music, things have changed a lot. I think that 
you know, Twitter and Instagram and streaming services have really personalized music in a way for people that did not exist prior to those avenues. Um, and they've given people access to artists in a way that didn't exist prior to those avenues. So that's been good. I mean, it's, it's cool to see real time reaction to a song when it comes out, you know, from fans, not just reviews, but to, to see the way that people receive a, a song when it comes out or a record when it comes out. Um, sure. And that's really cool and fulfilling to me. And it's, you know, especially so as an artist who's, you know, like there's not a big firewall between me and the people who like my work. Um, I'm pretty accessible on Twitter. I'm pretty accessible. You know, if you, there's a contact form on my website that goes directly to me, if you fill it out, I've tried to kind of tear that stuff down, especially since I was released from prison um, in, you know, when I decided that I was going to try and make records again or, when it seemed like there might be an audience for that, I wanted to try and maintain whatever that relationship is as honestly and as transparently as possible. And it felt like one of the ways to do that was to just open myself up to people who wanted to continue to have the conversation that we'd been having through my work. Um, so, uh, sorry, I got a little sidetracked, but no, the, that's the all other, right. it sounds like a other, double, it's a double-edged sword with like a it, lot of things in your eyes, it is. which I, I agree with in a lot of ways. And from a creative standpoint, the last thing I'll say is that um, I think for a lot of people, not so much for me, it's changed the way that they they think about making records, sure. you know, because people aren't really listening to records, records. You know, I still do. I listen to a thing from the from the track one until the right. last track. As a cohesive whole. As a chapter. cohesive, sure. as a cohesive Same. work. Um, and I, I don't think that's how most people consume their music anymore. But when I go into the studio um, and, and we'll touch on this a bit more later on in the conversation, I imagine, but when I go into the studio, I, I have, the work is conceived as a whole, right? Like when I sit down to write a record, I write the first song and then I write the last song. And mm -hmm. then I figure out how to get from the first song to the last song. And so to me, it's very purposefully made as, as a work to be consumed as a whole. Um, and so it's, it's hard to try and strike a balance between fitting singles into that and trying to understand the way that people listen to music now and still make work the way that I want to make work. I love that. I, so it's, you're, you're writing, uh, you're, you're not only uh, conceiving of and, and, and creating an album as a whole from beginning to end, but your actual process is such that you are, you are writing it chronologically in, in the way that it will then be experienced by a listener. Yeah. Not always entirely chronologically, but I always do write, you know, when I, when I, when it's time to make a record, um, I'm not, a, I mean, there are occasional little lightning flashes of inspiration um, or, you know, lines that, that come to me in the shower or while I'm driving that I jot sure. down. Little but kernels. typically, yeah, yeah. Yep. Typically when, when it's time to make a record, I set aside some time to write the record. Um, which is one reason why I don't have, like, there aren't a lot of B-sides, you know, there's a handful of, of tracks over the course of my career that haven't made records, but usually when it's time, I, I write what I believe is the first song and then I sit on it and edit it. And then I write what I believe is the last song and I sit on it and edit it. And then I think about, you know, where, how the character got from point A to point B. And then I start to plug points in over the course of, you know, the next seven, eight, nine tracks. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Let's stay on this idea of your kind of personal music writing process, Casey, since we, we were here right now. Um, it's, it's always interesting to me to hear about how other artists, uh, musical artists construct an album or, or whether, as you mentioned before, it's even something that they're thinking about as being a, a cohesive whole or like a book with chapters. 
Um, how do you then approach, and, and your songs, you bring up characters and kind of following them through their story from track one to, to the final track. Um, and it's interesting to hear how you kind of create that, that composite by working through the album. Um, your songs are incredibly character-based and are, and are uh, you know, draw upon worlds of your own creating and, and it sees really interesting characters kind of navigating between, between uh, you know, right and wrong or up and down or left and right. And you bring in extremely descriptive uh, landscapes and, 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 and secondary characters. Um, how do you, when you sit down to write one of those songs that's part of that larger album, how do you determine what this particular character is going to do or say? I mean, who is, who are these characters and how do you flesh them out? Well, um, that's a great question. I, uh, man, that's, that's a really good question. A lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of this newest record um, was written as sort of a response to Nowhere Nights, which is a record I made in, in 2009 that was personal. So a lot of the stories on this next record are maybe not entirely autobiographical, but they're rooted somewhere in my life. And I think most writers, you know, you put a little bit of yourself in, in all of your work. Sure. Um, and then from there, you know, I think, uh, I think it was maybe Jason Isbell I read an interview or heard an interview with where he talked about how making a record is, is a document of the artist's life. It's also a document of the time that you're making mm -hmm. the record. <clears throat> and so, you know, for me, well, I'm not always writing songs that are autobiographical or that are, you know, historically based or, or based in something factual. And I'm not always documenting a specific point in time when I'm writing the record informs what the characters are doing, um, where I'm writing the record, you know, how, where I'm at in my life. I wrote, uh, the Hawks and Doves record when part of it I wrote in while I was incarcerated, the rest I wrote just after I had been released from incarceration. So that really informed a lot of the songs. Interesting. That, that yeah, idea wanna... of that idea of seclusion and isolation and then coming back out into a world that is advertised as free, but is not, you know, sure. especially in this country is not a free place to live. Um, and this record I wrote, you know, between the time I wrote the Hawks and Doves record and finished it, I got married. Um, I wrote part of this record after my father passed away. Um, you know, my wife is is pregnant. And so it was informed a lot by thinking about loss and then thinking about, you know, how to rebuild a life and, and how to make amends and how to live out amends to the people that you've hurt and harmed. Um, and so that informs a lot of, of what the characters are going through on this record. There's a lot about memory and there's a lot about ghosts and there's a lot mm -hmm. about, um, there's a lot about, you know, just amends and, and trying to heal. I want to circle back more uh, on, on some of those topics, Casey, towards the end of sure. our conversation. Um, place can be an important creative tool, a centering mechanism, a lens, an identity marker um, for some musical artists. Is Portland to you what Asbury Park is to Springsteen? Um, I don't think it's, it's not quite what Asbury Park is to Springsteen. I think that he might be, you know, apart from maybe like Prince in Minneapolis or, or, um, you know, some, some Southern artists and the, the places they live, it's, it's harder to find 
an artist who can be separate, less separated from their, their place than Springsteen in New Jersey. But um, Portland informs the way I write and it informs the way that I approach working, certainly. I mean, I think that, that there is something that's kind of cliche, but true about the fact that when you grow up in the Northwest and you live in the Northwest, there's a big chunk of the year where most of us are inside because, you know, it's just very rainy and gray and dark and it's not a lot of fun to be outside and there's not a lot to do. And so I think the work reflects that. Um, And I had um, this, this critic and music writer named Jeffrey Himes one time told me uh, after a South by Southwest showcase, he said, he said, you're such a great writer, but there's no humor in your songs. And I was like, it rains nine months out of the year where I live. Like, I'm not having a lot of fun in, in, in February when the rest of the country is getting spring and it's still 45 degrees and rainy where I live. Um, but also I, the idea of there needing to be humor is, is, yeah, is, is interesting right? as well. It, it, I thought it was. And it, but it, I mean, it did spur me to try and think about because that's an aspect of my personality. I mean, there, you know, the, and it's an aspect of most people's personality. We're able to find humor in places where we need a little levity. Sure. Um, and so I've, I've tried to start to work that into my songs more after hearing that comment from Jeff. And that was, you know, like 15 years ago or whatever. But um, the music community in Portland informs the work I do. You know, I, I have always tried to make records with the people near to me. I don't do, I don't hire a lot of out of town session folks. Um, I, I made records in New York with Eric Amble at first and then um, started having Eric come out to Portland so we could work with Portland musicians or Seattle musicians. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing is that the way, the way people approach recording here in Portland is um, sometimes a little looser than I would like. I mean, sometimes I do miss working with with session musicians from Nashville and New York and Los Angeles, but um, it's really conducive to the way that I like to make records, which is live in the studio with a lot of improvisation, um, with a lot of arrangement on the fly. And that's always been a really rewarding way to work for me. And I, and I think that that comes from where I grew up and, and the people that I grew up working with. Cool. That's awesome. Um, you, you mentioned Eric Amble. Eric Amble is listed as having worked in various capacities on numerous albums of yours. How did you mm-hmm. first link up with Eric and how would you characterize your relationship with him now? Uh, he, well, he's, he's a very close friend now. Um, you know, one of, my, one of my closest friends and someone with whom I'm in touch a couple times a week at the very least. Um, I met Eric through Steve Earle. Uh, I met Steve when I was... I met Steve when I was 20, I think, um, and was really fortunate. And Steve was really generous and, uh, and with his time and with his advice to me and allowed me to spend a lot of time around himself and the band. Um, and I was around Steve when he was making the Jerusalem record. And uh, Eric and I just kind of became friends through that process. I was around Steve for, for a while while he was making Jerusalem while they were making Jerusalem and, Eric and I stayed in touch. And when it came time to make, you know, my first real record record, I reached out and, and he was into it. And, and that relationship was just so easy. And, you know, he brings a lot out of me in the studio and I've learned a lot from him working in the studio that uh, I, I probably would not have learned from anyone else. And it's stuff that, you know, whether, whether Eric is producing one of my records or whether he's just, um, you know, kind of on as a session guitar player, the way that he works has really informed the way that I work. He's one of my favorite producers. He's one of my favorite musicians. Um, he's, he's one of my favorite people. 
does he have a particular sound or is it is it his um is it his cooperative style that 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 affects the the, the final product and would it, how would a casey anderson song or album be different were it not for his creative touch uh well his his the guitar tones are very distinctive i mean that's that's a big thing about him is that he makes a guitar and an amp sound better than most people i've ever heard in my yeah, your guitar life. sounds phenomenal on all your stuff so that's eric doing that can you take yeah i mean that's 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 all either eric doing it or tricks that i learned from eric about how to make a guitar sound cool um and you know just musically he's been really great at i'm a guy who when i make demos kind of try to cram every melodic idea, every arrangement idea I can into the demo. So early on in my career, I would send Eric these demos that were like, you know, a drum machine track, plus a bass track, plus five tracks of guitar, two tracks of keyboards, sure. a fake string arrangement, <laughs> like fake horns. Sure. And because um, you've got the vision of what you want it to be. So why not throw it all on? There? Right. And I don't right. want to, you know, and I'm, I am worried that I'll like lose an idea sure. if I don't get it on the demo when it, the time comes to track the song for real. And he really has pushed me away from that as a writer and said, you know, when you send me a demo, I just want to hear your voice in the guitar. I just want to hear the song. Interesting. And then we'll make it from there. And so that changed my approach to making demos. I still kind huh. of for my own amusement will make the big yeah. fully orchestrated demo. Right, but when right, I right. send it to Eric or when I take it to the to the band that I'm gonna work with in that session, it's just acoustic guitar and voice and it allows people a lot of room to create on their own and to arrange on their on their own. Because when that's you a, send somebody cool. a fully orchestrated, fully arranged demo, it's they're they're hearing their part in there right like they assume right. okay well this string part that's on the demo is the string part that i'm supposed to play this is the viola part right. i'm supposed to play and so um you know you lose a big important aspect of the process which is allowing people the freedom to be who they are in the studio and, sure. and that's become so important to me over the course of my career that you know i want to leave people when i send them the demo i want to leave them room to hear their own part in there that's awesome wow that's cool um in a recent tribute essay to the Exploding Hearts, you've made it clear that the early 2000s Portland-based punk rock new wave revival group had a big influence on you personally and musically. I hear everything from Springsteen to the Counting Crows to Petty in your music. What other bands or musical artists, large and small, have shaped your sound and how specifically have they shaped it? Well, I mean, definitely Petty, Counting Crows, Springsteen, those are, you know, Steve Earle, those are all influences that I think I wear pretty clearly on my sleeve. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's an easy thing to say, but it's very true that if you are a person who stands on stage with an acoustic guitar and sings to people, then, then Bob Dylan more or less invented your job and the, and the genre in which you work. Um, and that's true to some degree, but you know, there's, there are all those people from whom Bob Dylan borrowed and stole that influenced him all those, you know, from from Ma Rainey to Woody Guthrie. Um, and it, it doesn't work its way into my records because I can't, I'm not a good enough player for it, but I love, you know, Thelonious Monk has been an enormous influence on me creatively. Um, Sarah Vaughan's singing is an enormous influence. And again, I just am not, those are influences that I'm not good enough to sure. emulate, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> But they like, find they see they germinate somewhere in there and, and yeah, they, yeah. they manifest in, in yeah, some they, capacity. 
They do. Um, and, and all those Northwest bands that I grew up listening to and playing with from like the Exploding Hearts, Federation X, Dead Moon, um, The Wipers, all those bands that, that, you know, like I said in that essay that we used to listen to at the skate park or that our, our friends, older siblings would, would show us. Um, that finds its way in. And again, it's not something that I think is a necessarily overt influence like i think you have to strain pretty hard to hear the exploding hearts influence in my songs but but it's in there and those those memories are in there and and that ethos that you know from from building a community around artists and and supporting one another is in there cool uh your song your song like teenage gravity is four different versions one with you as a solo <laughs> artist and one with hawks and doves which is the band uh, you mentioned earlier that's the band with whom you recorded your 2018 album one is Casey Anderson and the Honkies, and finally a cover version recorded by the 90s, 2000s pop rock sensation, The Counting Crows. How do you determine which songs will get new reimagined treatments and which won't? Well, the Like Teenage Gravity is a thing where I had my solo version and then Crows covered it uh, and I heard I heard Adam's version. I was I was in the studio for part of the time they were recording it. And I thought that their treatment was so beautiful and so different from mine um, that when we started working on the Let the Bloody Moon Rise record, I kind of like there was a sense of competitiveness where I was like, okay, Adam did a better version of my song than I did. I have to now do a better version of my song than Adam <laughs> did. Um, the Crows covered it. Beca it became a song that people, you know, it's one of a handful of songs that I've written that that people know, like if I, if I have whatever I have left of a career, I owe kind of to that song and don't look mm. back and a couple of others maybe. Um, and, and so it's a song that every time I play a show, people want to hear it. And, you know, and now if I do an internet thing or however folks are doing shows these days, people want to hear it. Um, and I just don't want to get tired of it because I don't connect as much with who I was when I wrote it. You know, I wrote that song. I was, wrote that song 12 years ago. So I was in my, in my mid late twenties and I want to find a way to keep it interesting for me to play. I want to find a keep a way to keep it interesting for people to listen to. Um, and I know that sometimes as listeners, you want to hear the song the way that you heard it the first time you heard it on the record. And, and I, I think for a lot of people that can be a challenge to listen to an artist change the arrangement. Um, but for me, it's a way to keep it fresh and to keep it exciting for me to play and to try and keep it exciting for people to hear. Adam Duritz changes his, his music quite, quite dramatically live, depending mm -hmm. upon when you go to see him. Um, and I, so I wonder if part of that uh, thinking goes into, into that decision-making for him. Uh, I'd imagine that after playing countless shows, eventually it's nice to be able to, kind of take a break from the original format and structure of a song and, and, and kind of reimagine it. So, so that's interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, Adam, especially the way that he delivers the lines, you know, the melodies change. Um, and it, it's also, uh, I can't speak for Adam, but I know, you know, even at I'm, I'm 40 now, I'll be 41 next week. And my voice is different than it used to be. You know, the timbre of my voice is different. My range is a little bit different. And so um, I'm trying to take care of my voice and I'm trying to deliver the material in a way that I think best fits what I can do as a singer sure. now. And I've never been like 
a, a vocal gymnast. You know what I mean? There's a range. Sure. There's a range that I sit right. where my voice sounds good, and I and right. I try and do what I can within that range. And and I think that that's another part of kind of ta tailoring the material. Sure. Yeah. Connor Obers talks about you know saying you know I I totally I, I understood from the beginning I would never be anywhere near the best singer out there, but I I know my skills and I know what parts of my craft can be honed and can be pretty good if I if I get it out there and polish it. And so he would always lean on his lyrics and he just saw his voice as like the vessel he, he, he was forced to work with, um, but yep. it was, was full well knowing that it wasn't going to be perfect. Um, but it's funny, you know, in, in its imperfection, a lot of his fans have gravitated towards, uh, towards what they hear as being like an organic, authentic sound. Um, I think it's safe to say that based on a lot of the reviews I've read uh, of of uh, audience members and, and critics uh, when talking about your music and your sound, they would tend to agree that there's something, there's something authentic and genuine in like the grittiness and raspiness of, of your voice. Um, how do you think that your voice has changed? You mentioned it has changed. Uh, it's gotten, I mean, my range is different than it used to be. There are some notes that I, you know, I used to be able to go up a couple octaves in a song uh, and I can't anymore. Um, as I found while recording this album. Um, I think that it's just also the wear and tear of aging. I mean, people's voice sure. change, people's voices change as they age and, and mine has. If I listen to myself from 2009, I definitely sound younger than I sound on a record now. And I, I do, I think that there's some, there's some character to that. You know, I think that there's right. a degree to which you can hear people age into their voices or age out of their voices. And because as I said, I've tried to have this conversation with the people who listen to my records over the course of my year, I, over the course of my career, I think there's, you know, there's something genuine about hearing someone age and, and, and being in that conversation. And, and you know, you can hear it. I, Springsteen talks a lot about being in conversation with his audience and you can hear the way that his voice has changed very right. dramatically over the years. And I, I just think that that's something that kind of connects you to your audience when they understand that, you know, people aren't going to stay 25 years old. He's not going to be right. the Springsteen who wrote Blinded by the Light forever. He's not going to be the Springsteen right. who wrote Hungry Heart forever. Um, and as you age and your your material changes and you're addressing different things, you're addressing relationships in a different way, you're addressing the world in a different way, I think that that's reflected not just in your writing, but in in the actual sound of your voice. And so to me, that's that's, you know, it's cool to hear people the way people's voices change. Yeah, I mean, if you're not embracing that personal evolution in all of its kind of glory and gruesomeness, then what is that really, is it really rock and roll? I mean, when I think of rock and roll, it's like one of the most honest genres in terms of, in terms of work ethic and in terms of, you know, being okay with imperfection and in fact kind of wearing that on your sleeve a little bit as a strength um, and just kind of kind of like taking what what comes and and trying to you know make something make something of it yeah i mean that's you know i i think a lot of the ways in which people record music now um with endless amount of tracks and endless amount of opportunities to go back and fix mistakes and right. and repair bum notes and tweak vocals is has I'm sure has been rewarding for some listeners and some artists um it's not something that is especially appealing to me um you know there are on on every one of my records and on this record there are you know someone hit a bum note but the take was good so we kept right. it and we didn't go back and fix it we recorded to tape 
And then we cool. edited, you know, when we did our, our a round of overdubbing, we did that digitally. Um, and I, I just think that there is a real benefit to giving yourself a set of human limitations to the work you can do. You know, I, I, I want the work that I can do to be representative of my talents and my skills and the amount of effort that I put into the work. And if there are mistakes in there, then that's okay with me. You know, that's, that's the human part of the work. There are some notes that I missed and, but the rest of the vocal take was good. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to swap in one syllable or one word when I, you know, like if that makes or breaks the song and the album for a listener, then they weren't paying attention to begin with. I love that. I love that idea of human limitations. You and me, we were believers looking for the diamonds in the dust. Folks, thanks for listening to the whole interview. This is Steve Fletcher from Steve's New Music Guide. Hope to see you all next week for part two of my interview with Casey Anderson. Please be sure to log on to my website, stevesnewmusicguide.com, and get yourself signed up for my free newsletter. I'm really excited for Casey Anderson's upcoming record, if you haven't noticed, and I do encourage you all to dig through his catalog. If you're not a Casey Anderson fan yet, I know you will be once you listen to a little bit more of his music. All of the tracks on this week's podcast were Casey Anderson's, and if you haven't yet, I recommend you log on to his website and uh, go get yourself some of his music physically or digitally. You can find it on Bandcamp as well. I'll see you all next week. Take care.